Hello, everyone from Embassy Church and anyone else listening online. This is Pastor Phil, and I'm wanting to share a few thoughts about hungering for God. There is a book by John Piper, according to that title, and there are many scripture passages that have been on my mind through this short series on fasting that continues our overarching teaching series on prayer. What I want to share with you is that the scriptures regularly use hunger as a metaphor that pictures the deepest longings of our heart. Throughout the Bible, the language of hungering or craving or thirsting for God are used as spiritual equivalents to the biological aspect of our being. Let me give you one example right off the bat. Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. This passage of scripture is sometimes seen as kind of sweet and cute, you know, a deer panting for water, but it's actually quite intense. If you keep reading, the psalmist says, my tears have been my food day and night. The kind of hungering or thirsting is one that is filled with tears. All day long, he is asking, where are you, God? And then he goes on to say, why are you so downcast within me? So this is not the sort of panting or craving or longing that is birthed out of uh, joy and delight, but it's it's out of anguish. It's out of uh, a deep-seated uh, questions and frustrations. In uh, John Piper's book, A Hunger for God, he says that the root of Christian fasting is the hunger of homesickness for God. And that's what I feel like comes across in Psalm 42, a hungering of homesickness. Uh, Piper goes on to say that I, what I mean by that is that we will do anything and go without anything if by any means we might protect ourselves from the deadening effects of innocent delights and preserve the sweet longings of our homesickness for God, not just food, but anything. And that's a uh, I think one way to be thinking about fasting during this time as we continue to discuss it as a church family. Another passage that I want to bring up is Isaiah 55, verse 1. It's an invitation, and it says, Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Another great example of the hungering metaphor comes from the teachings of Jesus, and there's plenty of them. There's the example of his very life himself when he, in Matthew chapter 4, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, was hungry. The tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In the very next chapter on his Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, those first few verses, Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And then a couple more examples from the life and teaching of Jesus. In John chapter 4, verses 31 to 34, this is right after the incident where Jesus was talking to a Samaritan woman by the well and talking about living water and 
all of that seemed somewhat deeper and cryptic than, oh, wait, is he talking about just regular water from a well or some sort of water that if you drink of it, you will never thirst again? Well, right after that, the disciples were urging Jesus and said, Rabbi, eat. And then in verse 32 of chapter 4, he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And then you got to just picture the scene because in verse 33, the disciples start speaking to one another and they say, well, did, did somebody bring him something to eat that we don't know about? And Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And in this one final example I want to bring up is just a couple chapters later in John chapter 6, verse 35, after feeding 5,000 people and having lots of conversations about Jesus and uh, with Jesus about food and life, Jesus offers himself as the only satisfaction of the deepest hungers of our heart when he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. All this should point to the reality that the Bible wants you to think about your heart, the desires of your heart, like the way you think about your stomach. Maybe you've heard this prayer before. It's from St. Augustine back in the early centuries of the church, a well-known Christian figure. Anyway, this uh, Augustine prayer in his confessions is well known. He says, you have made us for yourself and our hearts will be restless until they find their rest in you. And I think we could switch that prayer with the metaphor that we've been talking about this way. You have made us for yourself and our stomachs will rumble until we can feed on you. That's a great way to think about the practice of fasting and the metaphor of hunger or craving that is throughout the Bible. We all get hungry. We all need to eat biologically. This is a basic feature of human biology. What is different, though, about each of our hungers is that the direction our hunger takes, not just that we are hungry, but what we are hungry for is different. Some of us have different cravings and longings, even though we all have hunger for food. Which foods are we going to eat and satisfy those hungers with? And that's where it's an important observation uh, for us to realize that these hungers, those specific kind of cravings, are learned hungers. They happen as a result of the certain ways you've been eating, your diet, your practices, your habits that have been formed throughout your entire life. Those hungers, the specific cravings, propel us into a kind of routine or ritual that will solidify the way that we eat, the foods that we eat. So we like to say things all the time about our food as being acquired taste, but our tastes can be trained without you even realizing it. Why else do we crave foods that we might later realize, oh, these aren't very good for us? And it's because we're immersed in environments that pressure us into a sort of eating that will not be healthy. So in the same way that your stomach is a great example or illustration of hungering 
and then being trained and automated without even you realizing it by your environment, by your culture, by the way you grew up, your deepest hungers, the things that you want and the things that you love the most are also being trained to hunger and thirst for things that can never satisfy. This is what we talk about when we say that we've all been born into the world as sinners, as broken human beings with a heart that is longing and craving for things that won't satisfy the desires that they were made for. So we got to ask the most important question then, how do we train our hearts to hunger for God? And we need to realize that it's in the same way that when you're eating food, you have to retrain through your different disciplines and diets and environments to create a new appetite. And intellectually, we can know that certain foods are not good for us, but until we retrain our entire biological body to crave different foods and surround ourselves with different options in our refrigerator or on our pantry, then we're not going to eat differently. And this is true for our spiritual hungers as well. New knowledge and new information might help us see our sin. As we read the Bible, we might be exposed to what is wrong about the longings of our heart. But that in and of itself is not sufficient to undo those longings. We cannot intellectually learn our way by just reading the Bible to get new cravings. As Psalm 34 verse 8 says, We must taste and see that the Lord is good. Jonathan Edwards is one of Americans' most well-known or influential theologians, and he, he says in one of his sermons and teachings back in the day, uh, I can show you honey, and I can let you look at it. You can ooh and ah over its beautiful golden hue and the way that the light bounces off parts of it and penetrates other parts and radiates to glow beautifully in the light. I can let you feel how sticky it is and put it up to your nose and you can smell it. You can take it to a laboratory and study it inside and out and you will never know that it's sweet until you put it into your mouth and taste it. Of course, I could have told you that it was sweet and you could have believed me. Oh, honey is sweet because I told you, but I could be lying to you. You only truly know that honey is sweet when you put a bit into your mouth and you taste it for yourself. That's the question I think that the Bible is encouraging all of us. Have you tasted and you seen for yourself that the Lord is good? And is that creating in you a growing hunger and a new appetite for the things of God? The one major thing that will kill our hunger for God is desire for other things, even sometimes good things. The weakness of our hunger for God is not because God is unsavory, not tasty, but because we keep ourselves stuffed with lesser things. So as John Piper says in his book, A Hunger for God, perhaps then the denial of our stomach's appetite for food through the expression of fasting might even increase our soul's appetite for God 
We hunger for most what we worship the most. And then he has this beautiful little poem in his book. His goodness shines with brightest rays. When we delight in all of his ways, his glory overflows its rim when we are satisfied in him. His radiance will fill the earth when people revel in his worth. The beauty of God's holy fire burns brightest in the heart's desire. I want us to be seeing that the dangers of self-denial, the dangers of overly beating ourselves up like we're some sort of masochistic, oh, I can't ever have fun or enjoy life sort of thinking, the danger of self-denial on the one hand, and the danger of self-indulgence on the other, where I'm pursuing every pleasure I possibly can and thinking that this is going to be the way to happiness by having short-lived, quick, fleeting pleasures of my flesh, my physical body. There is a path in between both of these dangers, and that is the path of what Piper calls pleasant pain. Fasting is a path of pleasant pain, a countermeasure that can help transform our desires. We need to realize that a big part of our Christian life is to admit that we have too often settled for what would be like fast food pleasures for our soul. I want you to be thinking about an invitation that you might get to a party um, someplace where somebody's going to be cooking a delicious meal and you know that it's going to be really, really good. And so you're so hungry because you've been trying your best not to eat food all day long because you want to really revel and enjoy this meal. But then you give in on your way to that person's house and you stop and you pull over to like the 7-Eleven or the gas station and you just get those hot dogs that have been rolling around on the machine for 12 hours or who knows what. And, and you just stuff yourself with these kind of like quick, fast food, uh, dried out, things that that are cheap and and they do fill you up but they're lesser and and, and in one sense you could say it, it's not the best for you uh it's not poison and that's what I'm, i mean by it it's not necessarily the things that are poison and that are the worst it's sometimes okay things like lesser things that satisfy the desires of our hunger and then we're so filled or we're so stuffed with these other things that we have no appetite or hunger left for God. And so instead of feeding those cravings for lesser things, we must replace them with better spiritual foods that will de develop new cravings so that we would never make that foolish mistake of pulling off to the side of the road and saying, oh, I'll just grab the 7-Eleven hot dog instead of the feast that's awaiting me right around the corner. And this will mean that we must commit ourselves, initially especially, to things that our heart doesn't naturally want to do. If we're going to fast, that means not eat. And a lot of us would think that doesn't sound pleasant. And some of that's part of the idea. But another part of that is so that you begin to learn to commit ourselves to things that your flesh and your heart don't naturally want to do. Because as we submit ourselves to new disciplines... And many of them in the Christian life don't have that instant satisfaction, but over the course of time and repetition and the long, grueling marathon that it is to live the Christian life, we start to see that it is better 
and that our souls are being fed and satisfied in a way that they never were before. And this is one of the reasons it's extremely important for you to understand why church exists, why the church exists not just as uh, an event or a Sunday morning activity, but the people of the church exist. This week, as I was doing some of my own Bible reading, I was coming across this phrase. It's in one of the letters that John wrote at uh, the very end of the Bible. If you, if you open up to Third John chapter thirteen or Third John cha- verse thirteen, there's there's just one chapter. It's a short little letter, and he says, "I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face." I love that little line there in that letter where he's saying, I've got a lot of things I want to say. There's a lot of things that I'd love to be able to share with you. And letters were a form of communication like this podcast is a form of communication where we don't need to be face-to-face and in person. But you can tell that there's this hunger. There's this longing in John's heart where he wants to be with them face-to-face. And so the church the physical embodied expression of being face-to-face with one another is something that I want to have this season of the coronavirus and quarantine draw out this longing and hungering for us to see the beauty and the goodness of being together. It's it's almost like we, we have a sort of fast. We're abstaining from our physical presence during the coronavirus for the sake of helping other people not get sick and saving people's lives. Hopefully, Lord willing, that's what we're aiming for. And so as we do so, though, it is creating a, a fasting of sorts, a hungering and a longing in our hearts. At least that's my hope and prayer is that many of you will see that church exists to be a place where God can invite us to be a community of people together that will become a culture that has new loves and can help reorient our heart's desires to then retrain our appetites together. I don't know if you've ever tried to do a diet or retrain your food practices, but it helps a lot to have a covenant community around you, a a partner, a team, a whole family commitment, and not just do it on your own. And in the same way, this is what the church is. It's a covenant community that is aiming and helping one another to reorient our loves, our desires, the longings and appetites of our heart. But unfortunately, one of the things that I've I've been noticing is that over the course of time being a pastor here in the United States, it seems to me like many churches today are doing the exact opposite. Instead of trying to reorient your appetite and your desires and your loves, it seems like a lot of churches give in to the idea of church growth strategies to make sure their church gets real big and then lure people in to their buildings by offering a, just a buffet of what I would call fast food quality options, not the meat and the heart of God's word and theology and doctrine and Christ-centered teaching and this superior meal of his word and superior worship of not just the things that we already like, but new things that you wouldn't initially like, but after you do them and you practice them with a community of people, you realize, wow, confession of sin does does not sound like something I would initially like, but when we confess our sins together as a church regularly in corporate worship, and then we hear that word, that assurance of pardon, that God has forgiven us, 
Oh, what a delight it is to be reminded collectively that, yes, we're sinners, but, oh, God is gracious and merciful and will forgive us of our sins and have that declared to us. These are the superior offerings of the Christian worship. And so I want you to realize that one of the reasons we call ourselves Embassy Church is because discipleship to Jesus is like being an immigrant that has to learn a new way to live. When we follow the way of Jesus, we have been transformed and transferred from the kingdom of this world and into a new kingdom of God's beloved Son, as Paul says in Colossians 1.13. Through Jesus, we are given a heavenly passport, and this is displayed through our baptism when we became a Christian and we confessed Christ and were joined into the covenant community officially with baptism. And then we surround ourselves face-to-face with our church family when we learn from one another through observing. There's so much more we learn in discipleship by catching rather than by, by teaching. What's caught versus taught, if you've heard that phrase, then you know what I mean, that there's this idea of just seeing and living and doing life together with the locals of God's kingdom When we surround ourselves with people like that, this is what discipleship is about. It's like moving to a new country, being acclimated to a new way of life, learning a new language, acquiring new routines and habits, and unlearning all kinds of bad practices and habits from our previous country and kingdom and home. Christian worship, then, is the way that we learn how to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It gives us the new language and the new routines and the new practices that slowly and over time replace our old way of life. And fasting is one of those practices. Prayer and fasting become one of these languages and routines that we must embody and develop. And we need to practice it together as a community. And we need to do it in such a way that we can help one another so that we do not miss the point. The point is to grow our appetites and our hunger for God. And I want to close with this final thought. As I was reading that passage in 3 John, I was encouraged by the thought that John wants to be together with those believers face to face. He loves them. He wants to see them. He doesn't want to just write to them in the same way that I don't want to just talk to you over recordings from my basement In the same way, I don't want to just do Zoom calls on Wednesday nights or Sunday mornings and whatever time we have to connect online. I want to see you face to face. I want to do life face to face with other people because the gospel of Jesus Christ has at the very center of it, at the core of it, is God himself wanting to be with us face to face. This is why God did not send us just letters or prophets or messages for us to feed on the word of God through the written word. No, Jesus himself came. He became flesh. God became flesh and he dwelt among us and he came so we could see God face to face because God wants our ultimate longings to be a relationship with him. The the biggest cravings of our heart to be that day when John also says in his letter of 1 John that we will become like him when we see him face to face. And so there's this reason for fasting, and it's that right now we have a, a longing and a hungering to not only be together as a church, but we have a hungering and a longing to be together with Christ himself. And it's the one of the main reasons that Jesus says that fasting will exist. When the bridegroom is taken away, he says in Matthew chapter 
chapter 9, then his disciples will fast. And so it is for us. The bridegroom has been taken away. He has ascended to heaven and he is not here with us right now. And until he returns, we long for the day when we can be with him face to face. And so I'm hoping and I'm praying that through the practice of fasting, our church family will learn to retrain our longings and our hungerings for the things of God, for the return of Christ, and for church, for us to be back together as a church. Because these are the things that will shape and transform our hearts and our lives and give us new appetites and new longings. Let me close this in prayer now. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for the chance for technology to share this message and have people listen to it. I want to thank you for your word and for the way that it points us to what is right and good and what will really satisfy the longings of our heart. And I want to ask, Father, that you will expose to many of us the sin and the settling that we have given in to lesser things. Many of them are, in fact, probably poisonous to our very soul and our body, but some things we have filled our time and our minds with and our hearts with are, are, are lesser things that are okay. They're not poison. They're not destroying us, but they're not the best. And I want to pray that we will see with new eyes and new hearts a greater longing and a greater craving that we would say, as the psalmist did, as the deer pants for streams of water, so our soul pants and longs for you, God, that there's a hungering for us. I want to pray for those people that might be listening to this, that they're feeling right now that their hungers for God, their cravings for God are, are very small. And I pray that you would convict them of that, that they would have this teaching be a way to expose that need for them to turn from their sin and to embrace new habits and new routines, new practices of the Christian faith, new th- new um worship habits that will help retrain the cravings of their heart. And I want to ask God that you would bring our church family as a community around one another in such a way that when when people are struggling, we would be able to help them as uh, partners and covenant community members to teach them these things and to encourage them in these ways. So we want to pray that all of this would bring great glory to your name. It would transform lives and it would lead to the furtherance of your gospel message around the world that we might make disciples of all nations. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.